Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. This week, we're learning about navigating your career like an entrepreneur. Venture capitalist Beth Ferreira is a general partner at Firstmark Capital, and she spent her career on both the operating and the investment side. And today, she shares what makes successful entrepreneurs tick and how we can take those lessons and apply them to our own careers. I sat down with Beth at the Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit and started by asking her about managing a business in these tough economic times. Beth, welcome to Blazing Trails. Thanks for having me, Michael. Can you give us a sense of where things are, what you're seeing on the ground, and then how to kind of manage in these tough economic times? Yeah, I mean, in these tough economic times, you've seen a big almost whiplash. So, you know, six or seven months ago, there was a completely different funding environment. Mm -hmm. These entrepreneurs are sort of needing to change on a dime pretty quickly. So the things that they were rewarded for just a year ago are not what they're being rewarded for now. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we're trying to help them through is to think about, well, how do you adjust? Um, How do you change how you're thinking about your business? Mm -hmm. How are you utilizing all the resources that you have to the best of your ability? So whether it's your capital and your, your cash on your balance sheet and what you're spending your money on, whether it's your talent within your company. So trying to figure out and just overall how, you know, it's easy to say don't spend money, but obviously in the earliest days, you're probably spending, you know, spending capital, but how are you doing that in the most efficient way? And how are you making your unit economics better tomorrow than they were yesterday? And, you know, sort of moving in that direction. And are you looking at that with your portfolio companies right now, sort of actively helping to manage that process. Yeah, that's been pretty much the big conversation for the last 10 months. (laughs) I'd say probably, you know, maybe the end of December, early January, that's been, you know, a big topic of conversation. You know, first it was, you know, if you had capital, how do we stretch it out? Because this is obviously not the best time to raise capital. And so if you have capital, how do you make that last a little bit longer to get more runs on the board, prove out more things, be more interesting and valuable for someone who would want to come in and, and invest? So we had those first conversations. And then, you know, if some companies are just, that's their moment in time where they need to go raise now. And it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no sort of so sugarcoating that it's just a, it's a really difficult time. So the expectations are higher. The market hasn't really quite reset. So what, you know, a series A clearing price was six months ago, what is it today? And mm-hmm. it's not really there yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's this moment of like in between that's making it a little bit more yeah. difficult. It feels like that everywhere. Like it's that everybody's just waiting to see what's going to happen. And it's interesting it's sort of at that time, if you're working inside a company, a startup or a big company, how do you think about making yourself the most valuable person there? And I think all of us, when we're in this uncertainty, it's harder to make decisions. It's, it's you know, maybe harder to do that. How do you think about trying to make yourself the most valuable as you know these evaluations are happening at companies everywhere. Yep, yep, yep. And they say no one's indispensable, but Mm -hmm. I think there are some ways (laughs) (laughs) you can be uh, the most valuable person in the room. I'd say the first thing is thinking about time, is time generally. Mm -hmm. That is probably the most valuable resource we all have. So thinking about how do you create more efficient processes? How do you 
help everyone around you think about doing things faster. So whether or not that's taking something off your boss's plate or training your teams around you to think about sort of how they're approaching their work differently. Mm-hmm. So the second I would say is is reliability. So of course you need to do what you say you're going to do and do it in the time frame that you you say you're going to do it, but I think more importantly it's how you bring yourself to the table and bring yourself to the room. So, mm-hmm. you know, are you the person who we can reliably, you know, know that are going to push on the right types of questions? Mm-hmm. You know, are you um, you sort of getting there, you coming to the table to get to the truth, to get to what the actual problem that you're going to solve? And I think that is, you know, there's not that actually many people that do that consistently. And if you're able to do that consistently, it's it's incredibly valuable. And then the third is just attitude. I mean, we've been talking about like doom and gloom and it's really tough out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're all doing pretty tough things right now. And so having that positive attitude, being solutions oriented, bringing everyone together that we're going to get to the other side. It may not be great and Mm -hmm. it may not be fun right now, but we're all going to do this together and see it to the other side. You know, and I think there's something around sort of presenting yourself. I mean, you work in a space that there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot, a lot of relationship based stuff that drives decisions. Of course there's data driven decision-making, but you know, there's a lot that goes to existing relationships, et cetera. How do you think about presenting yourself to have those opportunities and to be seen in a way that is uh, authentic to who you are, but still putting you in a position where even if you're doing all those things, it may not be getting noticed. How have you approached that in your career? Well, it's definitely not easy. Sure. I think it's, it's the consistency. You know, if you're the one that keeps asking the question, mm-hmm. keeps bringing up the points, I think that's one way. I think the second is having the conversations outside the room. So with the people who might be making those decisions or these might be affecting how they're thinking about things. So again, our, in my world, if I had a strong view of about one of my companies, one of my partner's companies, I might say something in the room, but it probably has more power if I say it outside the room and give more context, which we might not have time to have. I mean, it's really interesting because, um, you know, at Salesforce, we talk about trust being our number one value and trust with each other, trust with our customers. There's trust in the technology across the board. Trust is just so critical. When you think about that investment, strategy and how the company works, the trust is so important. And then yeah, turning that yeah. turning that money over to, you know, you have no idea whether it's going to, I mean, you have some idea whether it's going to work or not, but it's, takes it's, a long risk. Time. it's a for lot us, of risk. Yeah. For yeah. us, we were making those investments and we don't really know until five or six years in how it's like really doing. And right. then we don't exit for, you know, another four. So think about 10 to 12 year time right. horizon. Right. And what sort of success rate, I'm just curious, with the investments do you need to see? I mean, you know, it's a business, it's a home run business where, you know, if you're doing, I don't know, three or four exits out of 10, you're in good shape. Is that the model? Yeah. I mean, the general rule of thumb in (laughs) in venture capital is, you know, a third goes to zero, a third is sort of in the middle, and a third returns the fund. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we generally operate that way. Yeah. I mean, do you ever feel like this is crazy? <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> it totally is crazy. And, yeah. You know, it's not a rational choice to start a company from 
zero to one. Right. I mean, it's a lot of financial risk. It's yeah. a lot of personal risk and, you know, emotional risk. And so you have to have the highest conviction of what you're going after mm -hmm. in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And so to get over that irrational choice, mm -hmm. you need that, you know, something that we look for is this product founder fit. Yeah. So we're like, when we're thinking about deals, we're like, why this problem? Why this moment in time? But yeah. actually most importantly, particularly in the earliest stages is why this person? Why are they going to wake up every morning and, you know, break down those doors and, you know, figure out how to make this work when... Mm -hmm most people are telling them they're crazy. When you look at Slack, for example, who made this hard pivot from being a gaming company all of a sudden into a B2B you know, yep. <laughs> messaging uh, company, how common is that real hard pivot story? Or is it more about incremental or small changes in trying to find product market fit? Yeah. Well, I think in Stewart's case, he also had some success behind him. So, yeah. you know, he had founded Flickr before and he had, you know, seen sort of the machination of the companies and he was an experienced entrepreneur. So yeah. I think when he, at the end of the gaming company and he looked around and he saw like, wait a minute, we have something here. Something is working. Something's working. Right. I think you know, he was in a different place than many founders that we we back. So right. to sort of like, okay, we're going to double down and do this because that takes a lot of fortitude to do that. Yeah, I'd say we see it, but it's not, I mean, more often it's more sort of subtle changes or more, you know, people like to use the word pivot, but yeah. it's usually sort of a slight change in the product strategy. Right. But there's not that many examples of the huge hard pivot growing right. into a giant right. company, which is why, you know, the Slack example is so unique. Right, right. It's a good story, but it doesn't story. it doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> That's great. I'd love to hear about sort of your take on some of the entrepreneurs and that you've seen over the years. You've had a front row seat to so many great entrepreneurial stories. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes a successful entrepreneur? Yeah. So there's three things that an entrepreneur needs to be able to do. The first is to be able to retain and recruit their employees. The second is to keep the company capitalized. And the third is to hold the vision of the business. And I think one of the things that you know we had, we had just talked about is there's sort of this maniacal like passion around the particular problem that they're solving. Mm -hmm. If you hold that vision, the other two kind of come together. So, you know, the retaining, getting someone to come on board when it's an irrational thing to do, especially in your first first five, 10, 50, 100 people, probably it's not totally proven out yet. So mm -hmm. you're still selling each individual person to come into your company and probably turn down lots of more lucrative or at least short-term lucrative positions that are more steady and probably are working less, you know, all of the things right. to come in and link arms with you to go and build this business. Mm -hmm. And then once you get them, you got to keep them there, the, the best people, right? And then, then once you have that, you need to keep the company capitalized. So you're constantly pitching and, and selling what you're actually creating so that you can get the capital that you need in order to to build that business. And mm -hmm. so when you have that magic three, mm -hmm. that is the recipe for a successful entrepreneur. And I'm curious if that applies, you know, being on the operational side and sort of building your career. Cause you know, we love to talk about entrepreneurs and, but it's such a small, really a small group of people. 
who are willing to do that and then take the chance to do that and then are successful at it. But we all are kind of entrepreneurs with our own career inside of an organization or moving to a different job or whatever it may be. How do you think about um, using some of those same skills for your own career? Yeah. So I've described startups as a giant change management project. Yeah. You're constantly rethinking how you're doing things over and over again. Mm-hmm. And for you know, your own career, it's like, what is, what's your North Star? What are you going after? And Why that's, are that's you, like the vision. The piece. vision, right? right? So you need to be able to adapt and bob and weave and really th- rethink how you do things. And maybe not all the time, but probably every, at least every year thinking about like, well, why am I here? What am I doing? How mm-hmm. am I spending my time? Mm-hmm. And so the more that you can think about that, the more that you're managing your own career, whether you're, this is your 10th year at the same startup or, mm-hmm. you know, you're moving around to different companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Figuring out how to make things dynamic inside your own organization. And I think right now, going back to the sort of tough economic times that we're looking at and how do you make yourself the most valuable person? That's probably part of it too, which is where are you showing the innovation, the understanding of what the drivers of the business are and how you're contributing to that, what opportunities may be there. I mean, it's interesting that in this time, it seems like a lot of opportunity comes out of out of these kind of shakeups. So it seems like a good time to be thinking about that. It's a great time to be thinking about that, particularly now. I mean, these periods are really great times to start companies. Yeah. They're really great chance times to like rethink things. It's a, it's a good time for that for you sure. Know, I'm curious, there's this vision of the, you know, 20 year old college dropout who starts a company and, and everybody has a huge return and everybody's mm-hmm. happy. But it turns out that people in their forties, fifties are actually two times or more successful in ventures, maybe not the same home runs. I don't know. What's, what's your perspective on when is the right time? Is age a part of it? It's a very hard thing to do to start a company. And so I think uh, there's a lot of benefit to naivete. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I guess and not having a mortgage. A mortgage and, yeah, and family yeah, yeah. and all of that good stuff. And right. so um, I think that's sort of the the vision of this, you know, usually guy yeah. in a hoodie coming right. in and pitching. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's definitely been a lot of success on that. But I think the average age of uh, an entrepreneur is actually older than 40. I think it's mm. like 42 or 43. Mm. You know, I think there is this, there are a lot of people, I think we don't like, they don't like to write about them because they're, you know, not as interesting or dynamic or, you know, yeah. unusual or feel unusual. Right. But there, there are many founders that come out and, you know, we have many in our portfolio that, you know, have been working in an industry and have seen the problem up, up you know, up close and right. now have like another way to approach it. And now they're building a whole business around it. And those, you know, can be just as, right. just as successful as, you know, some of, some of the, you know, earlier guys, but right. they don't, they don't make for as fun of, you know, magazine covers <laughs> right. for sure. I'm curious if you, what you would say to people who are starting businesses of the sort of bootstrapping. I mean, it depends on the business, of course, but bootstrapping versus taking investment and raising money and sort of what that looks like in the early, early stages of a yeah. company. Well, I think it's been so romanticized of like, well, if you get venture capital, this is like some mark of success. Yeah. And I think people really need to think about what the trade-off is. Yeah. And so one, you want to find that partner that you implicitly trust because mm-hmm. um, you are linking arms with them and, and sort of building your business together. But the second is venture capital expects 
very fast growth. Right. And so, and if you don't do that, that's a really hard place to be. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make the decision of whether or not your company is right for that kind of growth. Many companies are not. Two, do you want to do that? Do you want to be on that path where, you know, you're now created this like fast moving train that's mm-hmm. really hard to get off? And it's most of the time it's hard or impossible to change the course of that. So once you take venture capital, it's sort of, you know, is a, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, it kind of brings up the fundamental question of the, you know, has venture capital ultimately been good for business and for society or is it detrimental? Oh my goodness. That's such a big question. I mean, I think ultimately (laughs) it's good. While there's lots of companies that don't work and probably should not have gotten venture capital, there are so many companies that are sort of changing the way we're doing things, you know, and hopefully in a small part changing the world. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's what's exciting about venture capital is it creates that opportunity for people to do that Mm -hmm. and, you know, benefits, you know, millions of jobs are, you know, created and um, maybe hundreds of millions across all. That's venture seems companies. like a very, of course, all of them, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but lots and lots of jobs have been made, you know, created and, you know, new ways of approaching, you know, all kinds of things in our lives. Yeah. And so whether it's, you know, on the healthcare side or, you know, every, you know, making everyday people's lives better, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities there. And what about the, the pool of entrepreneurs out there and where the investments are? I know there's uh, such a small percentage that are going to female founders to female founders of color, for example. How is that changing? Are you seeing changes there? What's happening with with diversity and inclusion in in the VC world? So there is some change. The change has been slow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately, I think there's two things that need to happen. One, people who are in those positions to make decisions pushing this agenda. And so as we think about, you know, how do we think about the composition of our boards and you know who we're bringing around the table to as we grow these companies. And then the second is founders and ultimately founders being more exacting not just founders in any other category all founders that they want to see the diversity not only from the funders that they're getting funding from mm-hmm. but also around their boards and things like that and we're starting to see it in both directions. So I think mm-hmm. that will help accelerate but you know, in any any time of financial crisis, it is a you know it's like a big sort of red flag of worry of like, well, will we revert? Will like right. some of the progress that we've made over the last five years or so start to retrench? And mm-hmm. you know, I really hope not. And if we can get through this and see some progress, I think when we get to the other side, we'll see even more progress. Okay, great. Well, that's it for today. Beth, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. That was Beth Ferreira, general partner at First Mark Capital. Well, next week, we're shifting gears a little bit. We're going to be talking about bringing back the woolly mammoth. We're going to hear from Dr. George Church, professor of genetics at the Harvard Medical School, and Ben Lamb, founder and CEO of Colossal Biosciences. Together, they're pushing the boundaries of gene editing technology to reverse history in an attempt to revive ecosystems. Okay, so what they're doing is attempting to revive prehistoric animals like the woolly mammoth from ancient DNA to revive ecosystems. It's pretty wild stuff, and you should definitely check it out. And that's a great segue to remind you to subscribe to Blazing Trails wherever you get your podcasts or right here on the Salesforce YouTube channel.
Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce Studios, produced by Rachel Levin, edited by Cynthia Chavez, with original music from Andrew Duncan. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. Thank you.